Hi, this is Jane Evans. I'm going to introduce myself. Um, I've been teaching for Women's Bible Study for a, a number of years. I won't say how many. Um, and I am going to do the lesson today on 2 Timothy 4. Um, I don't have an audience, as you can tell. We are doing, I am simply recording this in a room by myself. So, let's start. Um, we are coming to the end of 2 Timothy where we get a very personal glimpse of Paul as he tries to pass on his wisdom to his spiritual son and heir, Timothy, in the face of his own imminent death. I have to say that I read this chapter very differently now than I did when I was a younger woman, as it now seems um, much more poignant and tells me how to face the latter part of my own life. We can break up this chapter into three parts. First, Paul has a charge to Timothy. The second are the arguments on which Paul bases these charges. And third, how he is personally living out these charges in Rome, even as he is asking Timothy to keep in mind the good and bad examples of living. The charge actually begins in verse 2, and Timothy will have six imperatives. Grammatically, that means commands thrown at him in one sentence. Breach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, Exhort with great patience and instruction. The most important to Paul is the first, preach the word. That is, Timothy must bring the true word of God against the false teachings that were circulating in the Christian community in Ephesus. Paul is calling Timothy to remember the teaching that he had since a child, when he learned the Old Testament from his grandmother. And then he learned about Jesus as he traveled with Paul. Timothy is not to deviate from this message, but to convey the seriousness of the word of God. It is urgent since Timothy is speaking about issues of life and death. Timothy and we are to be ready, like a soldier always on alert, in season, out of season, to be ready to speak. But, Paul says, we are to be sensitive to the spirit as we encounter each person who needs to hear the message of Jesus. Timothy, remember, was timid. So Paul's calling on him and us not to be shy or lazy. Paul's starting to pile up the verbs here because he knows how much the world needs to hear about the gospel. You may at times use argument or intellectual means if the person has doubts. You may use a warning, a reproof, or a rebuke to answer the moral questions about sin. You may use exhortation or encouragement to talk to someone bound by fear. But you must rely on the Spirit and wait for the Spirit to open a person's heart. You can't argue, exhort, or rebuke someone into the kingdom of heaven. Just ask anyone who's ever been a kid whether those tactics work to make the heart soft and willing to be changed. Why should Timothy do any of these things? Paul answers that in verses 1 and in verses 3 and 8. I solemnly charge you, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. For the time will come when they, that is, probably the non-believers, possibly heretics who have added things to the gospel, they will not endure sound doc doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires." They will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course. 
I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul's heavenward gaze is not interrupted by living on earth and knowing exactly what humans are capable of. He understands what it is like to be in a world hostile to the gospel message. Paul realizes at this point in his life he will not live to see Jesus' second coming, but he does know that it will happen. Jesus will come back and will be visible to all to judge both the dead and the living and to finish bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth itself. Paul, Timothy, and all of us will be asked to give an account of ourselves and our work when Jesus appears. Do not misunderstand me here, as I know the only way to live with Jesus in his coming kingdom is to rely on the death he suffered for my sake on the cross. But we will be asked to account for our obedience to his will while we were on earth, as John wrote in Revelation 22.12. Yet Paul knows that hard times are coming to the church, as people will fall away from the gospel. Paul does condemn the false teachers who lead the people astray, but he also places some responsibility for the straying on the people who are listening. Christians have to look for teaching that follows the message of the gospel, not just people who tickle their ears with easy teaching that suits their own desires. Perhaps these people are looking for new theories or speculation about when Jesus' second coming is happening, or perhaps in a period like the one we are in now, they are looking for something non-biblical to make them less fearful. God has promised us that everything that happens he knows about and is in control of. It's natural to be uneasy or frightened when we are faced with something we have never experienced before, like a worldwide pandemic. But think about the situation that Paul knows that Timothy is walking into. There will soon be widespread persecution of the Christians. People who called themselves Christians will fall away. They will go after easier teacher teaching by finding teachers who talk about faith in a way that they have decided that they want to practice it. We, like Timothy, are called to be sober, steady, self-controlled. Don't give in to speculation. Don't spend a lot of time on social media hearing about all the bad stuff, whether that bad stuff is real or not. But do spend time meditating on how God's plan for allowing you to live with him forever has worked out. But let's get back to more imperatives from Paul. He acknowledges Timothy will face tough times, which Timothy must endure. By telling the truth, Timothy will suffer. His first priority should be doing the work of the evangelist by preaching the message of the gospel. This is a task of his ministry. This is the work he is supposed to do and was told to do when Paul and others laid hands on him and prayed for him. The next point is how biblical scholars have theorized that Paul was released from his imprisonment from Rome. For his first imprisonment, we know, was in a, was in a house, and people freely came and went. That's in Acts 28, 30-31. And then Paul also wrote in 1 Timothy 3, 14, that he expected to be released from jail. And apparently, after being released, Paul traveled to some degree and then was rearrested abruptly enough that he could not gather his few possessions before being hauled back to Rome. Remember how he spoke in 1 Timothy. His language was optimistic, and he expected he would be able to strengthen Timothy by meeting him again. But in this letter, 
there's a switch in mood and tone as Paul moves into very moving language about how he sees his life, describing it and the new stage he is entering into with three metaphors. The first one is Paul's life is a drink offering poured out to God. This is imagery common to both Jews and pagans as priests put liquids in flat dishes and poured them out over the altar. Paul is seeing his entire life as an offering to God and soon the dish will be empty. Nothing has been held back. This is such a wonderful visual way of thinking about how to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second one then, Paul says his time of departure has come. The Greek verb implies that Paul is thinking about a boat. The anchor has been drawn up, the mooring lines are loosened, and the boat is getting ready to sail for a new shore. I can't help but think about what was the last scene for Frodo in The Lord of the Rings as he steps with sadness, joy, and relief onto the boat that will bring him to the Grey Havens where he will be fully healed. Paul is sad about leaving his friends and his ministry behind, but he is looking with joy and relief to the haven where he will spend eternity with Jesus. His third one, Paul reminds Timothy that his life has not been easy. He compares himself to a soldier and an Olympic athlete. The work has been hard, physically as well as spiritually, but he maintained his discipline and kept in mind the prize at the end of the struggle, at the end of the race. He has preserved, through the work that God assigned him, the gospel treasure, allowing it to be passed on to others. And now Paul goes on, God will reverse the sentence that he expects to hear from the earthly court. While they think they're passing a death sentence on him, God has already reversed that decision and will declare Paul righteous, not through Paul's works, but through the work of Jesus on the cross. After he receives his new life sentence, we can call it, he expects to meet a crowd of others who have faithfully fought the fight and run the race. After verse 8, we move into a more personal part of the letter. This is a normal part of the ancient letter, giving some news to Timothy and some instructions. Paul rarely addresses this many people, but again, this speaks to the nature of the letter he's writing. He tells us outright what he had hinted at in 1 Timothy 1.4. He's lonely, and he needs some emotional support. Excuse me, that was 2 Timothy 1.4. He's lonely and he needs some emotional support. Only Luke and Tychicus are with him now. And here's how he's going to work out that Timothy can come. Paul will send Tychicus with the letter he is currently writing to Ephesus to take Timothy's place. Timothy is to pick up the things in the nearby town of Miletus that Paul left there and pick up Mark at some other point and bring them both to Rome. Mark, you'll remember, is the young man who left Paul in Acts 13.13, but Paul had apparently forgiven him years before as Mark resurfaced as Paul's co-worker in Philemon 24 and Colossians 4.10. And now Paul considers him useful, both personally and in his ministry. Mark has clearly grown in his walk with God. We don't know what books or parchment Paul wanted, but since he's asking for his heavy winter coat, he's either a prisoner in or is anticipating being in jail for the winter. 
He does ask Timothy to hurry before the winter weather shuts down travel. Troas, which is mentioned in verse 13, is on the west coast of Turkey, just like Miletus and Ephesus, and one could easily get a boat from Miletus to Troas, and from Troas to the western parts of the Mediterranean, but if the winter was coming, Timothy might have to, be, have to go by land from Troas to Italy, which would be a very long trip. We know a little bit about the others mentioned in the passage, nothing about a few. Demas, who deserted Paul, is a sad story. He was in prison with Paul, Mark, and Luke, and Paul called him a fellow worker in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 1.24. Why he fled Rome, we don't know. Was he afraid of being executed along with Paul? Was he homesick and wanting to go back to an easier life? probably in his home in Thessalonica. In either case, Paul feels betrayed. Crescens we know nothing about. Titus may have left to pursue his ministry in Dalmatia. Paul doesn't see their leaving as a betrayal in, it, in either case. Priscilla and Achilla and the household of Onesiphorus are greeted. So they must all be in Ephesus with Timothy. Priscilla and Achilla had met Paul in Corinth. They were already believers, in fact, when they met Paul. And he took them both on a missionary trip to Ephesus, where they appeared to have stayed for at least a time after Paul left. Yet in Romans 16, 3-4, we hear that they went back to Rome. And they, I, I say back because they had originally actually moved from Rome to Corinth, probably expelled from the city by the emperor Claudius when he expelled all Jews and Christians from Rome. We don't know why, or we don't know um, how, how, why, or, or um, when they returned to Ephesus. Anesiphorus is more of a puzzle. Paul had told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 16 18 that Timothy need not be reminded of the help Anesiphorus gave Paul in Ephesus. And he later searched for Paul in his second arrest in Rome to give him some physical relief and spiritual comfort. Paul wants Timothy to know that, so perhaps he can pass along this comfort to the family of Onesiphorus, who, must, who may have died while ministering to Paul in Rome. Or perhaps he's away on a missionary trip away from his family, and they need news about him. In either case, we see again how Christianity is a matter of having a new family, all of whom support each other in good times and in hard times. Paul goes on to explain why he's alone. Erastus is in Corinth, probably doing ministry. He may be the Erastus mentioned in Romans 16.23 as a political leader in Corinth. Timothy would know him as Erastus, would know him, excuse me, as Erastus had been sent by Paul with Timothy as a mission partner to Macedonia. Trophimus was sick in Miletus, the last Paul knew. Paul must have been worried about him, as he had accompanied Paul on his part of his third missionary journey, and was in Jerusalem when Paul was arrested. Possibly Trophimus had traveled with Paul on his last missionary journey between the two jail terms in Rome, and also saw Paul get arrested for a second time. We don't know why Timothy needs news of both of them. But there are some people still in Rome who are helping Paul. We know nothing about Eubulus. Pudens, Linus, or Claudia, but Timothy did, for they greet Timothy. 
Perhaps he had met them when he was with Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome. Alexander the coppersmith or the silver metalsmith gets a vehement mention. Unfortunately, Alexander is a very common name in the ancient world, so we're not entirely certain if this is the Alexander who was pushed to the front of the riot in Ephesus to try to calm the crowd. If so, we know he was Jewish, which is why the crowd wouldn't listen to him. Yet there are enough Alexanders running around in the ancient world that Paul had to tell Timothy, this is Alexander the metalworker. So it's more likely to me this is the same Alexander whom was mentioned in 1 Timothy who had rejected the faith and been handed over to Satan. We don't know what harm he had done after the first letter to Timothy, which leads Paul to say it was great harm. Did he instigate Paul's second arrest? Paul ends with a factual statement and not a prayer that Alexander will face the same judgment that we all face and God will judge what Alexander did to Paul. Timothy is told news about Paul's first hearing, which may, must be the first hearing of the second trial, for Timothy was present at Paul's first trial and would have needed no news about that. Paul was likely brought up on charges that other Christians were at that point, treason for not making sacrifices to the emperor as a son of a god, atheism for not worshiping the pagan gods, cannibalism for eating the body and drinking the blood of a man, witchcraft for meeting at night or at dawn and having prayers that everyone said in unison. Paul was not literally delivered from the mouth of the lion in the first hearing, since he was a Roman citizen and could only be put to death by beheading, but he is referring to the ferocity of the prosecution. Paul could at least deliver the gospel message in his trial in Rome, just as he had years ago in the court in Caesarea. However, he is calm in the face of the next trial, for in verse 18 he writes, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This letter might be the last surviving words of Paul. He has appealed to Timothy's loyalty and charged him with keeping, at work, keeping to keep working at his ministry. There's no tension between Paul's earlier message to Timothy to stay in Ephesus and preach. Circumstances had changed, and Paul needs to communicate with Timothy. The church in Ephesus will be in good hands with Tychicus there. But in case Timothy does not make it in time, Paul wants him to remember that it's his 30 years or so in the service of the living God as he prepares to receive his crown of righteousness. The letter is then kind of a last will and testament, not only to Timothy, but to all the church. Paul is thinking about the generations ahead who need to hear the gospel, and so he urges Timothy to take up the message that he has been taught so well. And so Paul's benediction is for Timothy, but also for you, the generation that Paul had in mind when he wrote, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. God, our Father and Provider, who holds us all in the palm of your hand, help us today to hear the words of Paul that you gave him as he sat in the cold, damp prison longing to see and talk to his friends before he departed this earth. We pray that we, like Paul, 
may remember at each moment where we are heading to the great haven where you will give us the crown of righteousness because of the work of your son, Jesus. We pray that we may look with joy and relief towards that reward while straining every muscle while we are here on earth to do your will for us. During this time when there may be some languishing in their homes due to precautions because of the illnesses going around, we thank you that we have technology to help us keep in touch. Give us courage and strength to help those who are in need, whether the, the need is physical, spiritual, or emotional. We pray for those most at risk that you'll put a barrier around them. We pray for our first responders that you'll keep them healthy and keep their families healthy. We pray for those who are suddenly without income that you will open our hearts to their needs so we don't just say to them, I'll pray for you, go and be well, but we'll listen to the admonishment from James that we enter into their needs. We pray that we'll be able to look to you when we are fearful or afraid. We pray we'll be able to meditate on the work and life of Jesus and how he controlled the very waves of the sea since he was a creator of those waves. We pray that we will be able to lift up Jesus like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert so that everyone who looked at it was saved. May we be Christians who lift up Jesus so our friends, family, neighbors, and the world may see Jesus and be saved. Amen. <laughs>